Good morning. So let me back up here again, as you can tell, which is exciting for me. I don't know how you feel about that. Don't let me know. But I want to talk a little bit about emotion, which uh, makes all the guys feel uncomfortable. Um, But emotion is an unbelievable thing, right? It's an unbelievable aspect of humanity. We feel a whole range of emotion. And we're moved to emotion through many different spectrums, many different areas of life. People can make us emotional. Conversations, movies, music, film, literature, the sunrise, the sunset, all types of things can make us emotional. And we feel all types of emotion. We feel joy. We feel hope. We feel peace. We feel sadness. We feel a deeper level of sadness that we have termed depression. We feel anxiety. We feel grief. We feel all types of emotions. And motion, emotion moves us to behavior. It moves us to action. And it is really the fundamental building block of much of who we are as humans. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. So I have a yard. And if you have a yard, you know the summer is like hell on earth down here, right? It rains every day. The sun is literally three feet from the ground, so everything grows so fast. So you have to go out there and you have to do yard work every week. It takes multiple hours. You got to cut the grass every week. You got to weed. You got to trim. I mean, it's insane how fast. It's like a greenhouse down here. I don't even know if stuff grows fast in a greenhouse, but I'm just going to use that. But some of us in here enjoy yard work, right? Raise your hand if you actually like yard work. Okay, a few people. Raise your hand if you loathe yard work. Okay, more people. See, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence. Sometimes I like yard work. It makes me feel productive. Um, it makes me feel like I've accomplished something because it looks terrible and then I make it look nice. So it's kind of like that fixer in me. But if you have the situation I'm in, at this last few months, you loathe yard work. Because maybe like me, you have three massive mature mango trees. And if any of you are familiar with mango trees, they are birthed by Satan. He created them. They're not in heaven. I'll tell you that right now. Just the fruit. Here's what happens if you have mango trees. And I have three different types of mangoes, fully mature. Always just buy them at the store. Never plant them. Because what happens with mango trees is two months before you get mangoes, the tree just drops sticks all over the yard for no reason. They don't have anything to do with anything. It's just like, I'm going to annoy you for two months and just drop sticks everywhere. And then I'm going to shed like a dog my leaves all the time. For four months, I'm going to shed leaves because that's what I do. And then for about two, two and a half months, I'm going to produce mangoes, which sounds great. It's terrible. It is terrible. Because if you're in my situation, I have picked up in the last two months easily over 2,500 mangoes. It is terrible. And so what happens is I have to go out there and I have to get them before the animals get them. Actually, a few days ago, if you would have seen me, you would have thought I was a crazy person chasing a raccoon out of the back of my yard as he's enjoying my mangoes. It is terrible. Mangoes are delicious. But for me, I a lot of times like to go into the yard. I wake up in the morning and my emotions say, I'm energized, I'm ready to be productive, let's go in the yard, let's get some stuff done. But during mango season, it's not the case. So a lot of times what I do is I've learned how to manipulate my own emotions. And what I do is if I'm not feeling like yard work, I watch HGTV. 
and I watch either house hunters or yard crashers. So I either look at really nice houses or I look at yards that were disgusting and then they make them beautiful. And then after 30 minutes, it makes me ready to go. It gives me that, that, that kind of kick that I need. It changes my emotions to, okay, let's get in the yard. Let's make it look good because that house was awesome. And we do that a lot of times with a lot of things, right? We do that with music. We're sad. Maybe we want to reinforce our sadness, so we listen to sad music. Maybe we, want, we don't want to be sad anymore, so we listen to positive music. Or we're going to play a sport, and we have a big football game coming up, or we're going in to pitch something, and we don't listen to Beethoven, right? Maybe if you do, it's a little off, a little weird. But you listen to something that's going to pump you up because you need energy. You need to be ready to go. We do this with all types of things in life where we understand that emotion dictates our behavior and our attitude and our actions. And so sometimes we try to manipulate our behavior or sometimes things around us and circumstances affect our behavior and they help us or they make us produce certain attitudes and certain actions and certain thoughts. And this morning we're going to be discussing a profound human emotion, grief. But this emotion that David shows us runs way deeper than just David shows us grief, and therefore we should understand more about grief. The fact that David has grief in 2 Samuel 1 is really astounding and really confusing. Because what David shows us is that he grieves at the death of not only his best friend, which makes sense. Jonathan is his best friend, and he's saddened, and he grieves over the loss of him, but he grieves over the death of Saul which we don't expect. We expect David to celebrate, at least like an in, a little inside party where he he's like, doesn't want to show people, but he's like really pumped because now he can be king. So this morning, we're going to pick up in 2 Samuel 1, but what happened right before this in 1 Samuel 31 was David had gone to the brook Beshor in chapter 30, and we've seen that example where he rescues his family back and he gets the treasure and the plunder. And then we see the climax of the story at Brook Beshore where he shows us what compassion looks like. He gives compassion details. And we're challenged in last week's section with the question of who are we more like, Saul or are we more like David? Are we givers or are we takers? Are we compassionate or simply sentimental? Are we driven by faith or are we driven by self-consumption? And we wrestled through that, we worked through that, and we know what happened in chapter 31 was Saul was fighting on Mount Gilboa. He was fighting against the Philistines, the enemies of God, and the war is pressing in all around him. People are sword fighting, people are dying all around him, spears are flying through the air, horses are running down people that are trying to flee, and archers are shooting arrows into the masses, and Saul's in the midst of this. And as he's fighting and as he's trying to defend his life and the people around him, he gets struck by some arrows. And when he gets struck by some arrows, he probably cowers off to the corner and gets behind a tree and gets to safety. And he looks down and he realizes that he's losing a lot of blood. And life is draining out of him. He can feel it. He can feel the coldness coming on as life begins to drain out of him. And he looks at his armor bearer and he tells his armor bearer, you need to kill me. You need to kill me right now because if you don't kill me, the Philistines are going to find me here and they're going to have the privilege and the honor of killing me and they're going to disgrace me. So you, armor bearer, need to kill me. The armor bearer, confused on what to do, not knowing in the moment what to do, he thinks about it and he just refuses to obey his king, the person that he has pledged to be his right-hand man and do whatever he says. He refuses to kill him 
because he knows the ramifications. He knows he's not allowed. He's not given the right or the privilege to kill the Lord's anointed, no matter what. Imagine if the president of the United States, there was an attempted assassination on him, and he was wounded, and he, he, he huddles over in a corner, and his Secret Service agent is there, his right-hand man, and the president says, I'm going to die. Just kill me. Would he do it? What would be going through his head? What would he be thinking? What are the ramifications if he actually did kill the president? He's not allowed to. The armor bearer understands this, but it's multiplied because he's not only concerned about the ramifications of Israel, he's also concerned about the ramifications of God. God is not allowed, it does not allow the people to kill the Lord's anointed. Psalm 105 says, touch not my anointed ones and do not do my prophets no harm. And so he refuses. Saul realizes this. And so Saul takes matters into his own hands as he often does. And he takes the sword and he puts it under his stomach. And with one big gasp of breath, he falls on his sword. And cries of pain echo forth. You can imagine what that may look like and seem like. And then maybe silence falls over. And the armor bearer, astounded and devastated over what he's just seen, and, and, and welled up with emotion, puts a sword under him as well, and he falls on his sword. And then the Philistines, it says that the Philistines the next day come throughout all the bodies, and they've already taken residence in some of the cities around because people have fled because they're fearful that the same fate may happen to them. So now the Philistines have residence in Israel, and they're going down, and they're going through all the bodies, collecting weapons and armor and different things that they can use. And they find Saul, and they take his body, and they take the armor off and the weapons off, and they send it throughout all of the Philistine nation. They put it in the house of idols. And they celebrate, we have destroyed and slaughtered Israel, and we've killed their king, and we've killed their God. And then they take Saul to further disgrace him, and they nail him up to the wall of one of their cities. And some men of Jabesh Gilead, who were very faithful to Saul, because Saul earlier in Samuel rescued them, they realize what's happened, and they plot a secret military mission, and they go out, and they take down the body of Saul, and they bring it back. And they burn Saul and bury his bones, and then they fast and mourn for seven days. So this is what's happened. And this is where we pick up the story. In 2 Samuel 1, starting in verse 1, After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. So David comes back with his family and everybody that's with him, as well as the plunder, and they go back to Ziklag, the place that was burned, their old home. They have no idea what's happened with Saul and Israel. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And he came to David. He fell on the ground and he paid homage. You can feel the tension here, right? David sees this man, this disheveled looking man, come from the direction of Mount Gilboa, come from the direction of the battle, and he wanders up to the village. And David is wondering, what has happened? Was he there? Does he know the outcome? And what we don't know at this point in the story is David so nervous and so anxious to find out the outcome because he wants to know if now he's king, to know if he can kind of do that celebration dance and say, now I'm king and I can fix Israel. Or is David actually sincerely concerned about not just Jonathan and the people of Israel, but Saul as well? So David says to them in verse 3, where do you come from? And he said to them, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And this man is before David on the ground, totally disheveled, looking completely exhausted. And in this moment, David 
most likely maybe falls to the ground on his knees and he shakes the man and he looks at him face to face and he says, tell me how it went. What happened? Were you there? Are they alive? And he answered him, the people fled from battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. And David in this moment collapses in on himself. His voice escapes him. He begins to shake. He begins to well up with tears because Israel's been defeated. His best friend, Jonathan, has been killed. And Saul, the anointed king, has also been killed. Many things are probably running through his head. How can this be? How could this happen? How could Israel be defeated by the Philistines? How could Saul actually be dead? What if I were to stay there? What if I didn't return back? Even though the Philistines told me to leave, what if I stayed? Could I have helped? Would I have aided in the war? Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me, and I answered him, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me. For anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him, and I killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to you, my Lord. And David is overcome with grief in this moment. And you notice here, this story is a little bit different than the story I just told you from 1 Samuel chapter 31. This story is the Amalekite is claiming to have killed Saul. He is telling David, I killed Saul. He was almost dead, but I killed him. And then I took the crown and I took the armor and I brought them here to you. Now, there's a lot of different thoughts about how this could be so, but one thing that could most likely be the case is Saul falls on his spear to try to kill himself. And maybe in, he doesn't succeed in the moment. He extends his life longer than he wished he would have. And the armor bearer does the same, but he actually dies. And so Saul, in his last moments of life, lying on the ground, sees this Amalekite and says, you need to come over here and finish the job. You can tell I'm not going to survive. I'm not going to live. Finish me off. And the Amalekite does so. He kills Saul takes the crown, he takes the armlet, and he brings it to David. And David, upon hearing this news, took hold of his clothes in verse 11, and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with them, and they mourned, and they wept, and they fasted until evening for Saul, and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. So David and all those people surrounding him give themselves over to grief. They tear their clothes. They, they show open brokenness for what they're feeling and what they're going through, and they mourn the death of Israel, Jonathan, and Saul. That's really, really striking because it's not what you expect. And then David pulls himself together at evening, and he comes to interrogate the Amalekite because he needs to know more. And he says in verse 13, To the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand 
to destroy the Lord's anointed. You see, what David realizes here is that this Amalekite understands the dimensions in Israel. He knows the tension and the hostility between David and Saul. He knows that David is next in line to be king and that was anointed king. So he has been around Israel. He understands the dynamics. He understands the commands. He understands the laws. He's a sojourner. He's a nomad. He's been around this region, this area for a while now. He knows enough to bring the crown and the armlet to David, hoping that he's going to gain asylum or honor, or maybe he'll even get a seat at the right hand of David in the kingdom, or at least some job that's honorable. And he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows that he is not allowed, nor is anyone allowed, to take the life of the Lord's anointed, and yet he does so. He sees opportunity, and he seizes it. David, in verse 15, called out to one of the young men, and he said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I've killed the Lord's anointed. David, in an act of seriousness, to show the commands of God, to show that what God says in his law and his word is really serious, and that it's not okay to take the Lord's anointed's life. He condemns him to death, and he's justified to do so because this Amalekite knew what he was doing. He committed murder. He saw opportunity, and he disregarded what he's heard and what he knew, and he committed murder, and he totally misunderstood David. He most likely was assuming that David would celebrate, right? And not only would David celebrate, but David would also honor this man because now David has the crown. And David not only has the crown, but he has the armlet. He has all the vestiges of what it means to be king. And he would honor this man, and this man, his last moments of death must be astounded that David would grieve and bring justice to Saul. Why would he do so? Again here, David does what we don't expect. He mourns Saul. He dignifies Saul. And he executes justice on Saul's behalf. And as if David hasn't been striking enough already in this passage, he goes a step further and he pens a poem. A poem that is remarkably emotional and beautiful and sincere. It's rhythmic in nature. It has an inclusio that says three times how the mighty have fallen. He honors and he celebrates Saul and Jonathan with surprising grief and lament. You see, you expect this to come for Jonathan, his best friend. His best friend who's been there through everything, through thick and thin. He's been David's man, but not for Saul. So I'm going to read this, and I want you to feel it. I want you to feel what David is saying, the emotion behind, the sincerity behind what he is writing and what he's crying out to God. He says this in verse 17 and forward. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Escalon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, Let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. For the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. In life and death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. 
You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. Could you write that about an enemy? Could you even write that about a friend? How could David write that about Saul? I mean, we've seen Saul. We know how he's been. David has been running for 10 years, living in the desert, suffering, persecution, wondering how long he's going to survive, knowing that he is actually the rightful king. He writes that about Saul. So David cared. He lamented because he cared. He was compassionate. As we saw last week, he had compassion for the community, the community of God. Life matters to David, especially the life of those that are God's children. And Saul is one of them. Saul was a son of God. David shows us that that lament and grief is really important. 70% of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. You see, David sees life differently than most of us do. He definitely sees life differently than I do. He understands something that we don't. The expectation that we have is that David would see Saul's death as gain. Maybe we don't expect for him to publicly celebrate, but we expect for him at some level to be happy. Because now David gets to be king. He is supposed to be king and it's his throne. David doesn't have to run. He doesn't have to hide. He doesn't have to be fearful for his life and the life of his friends and family. He can take a deep breath. And now he can begin to restore and to fix Israel because Saul has been destroying Israel over the years with his lack of leadership. And yet David not only refuses to celebrate Saul's death, but he grieves sincerely over Saul's death. Because for David, Saul's death was a loss. It wasn't a gain. You see, Philippians tells us that to die is gain. You've heard that before, maybe. And that for the individual Christian, when you die, it's gain because you gain relationship and full access to God. You die on earth, but you're with Christ in heaven. But for us, death is always lost for the community. Maybe gain for the individual, but it's lost for the community. And David gets this, and he chooses to focus on that. He chooses to focus on the successes and the grace that God had given Saul, not his failures. He was determined not to be taken over and overwhelmed by the hate that Saul had shown him. Because he knows that if he allowed that to happen, he would have been destroyed by it. He would have been a man seeking vengeance. He would have been a man who celebrated the death of Saul and then further drove a stake in the heart of God's people. But instead, we see David here become expansive and generous and compassionate. And he works towards the unification of God's people. David has a passion for the community. And what's even more shocking to me is that David not only is resolved to to kind of say this lamentation and to feel this emotionally, but personally... He wants to make it public, and he tells them to learn it, to memorize it, to tell it to each other. It's as if he looks at his people, and he laments publicly, and he says, listen, you need to learn what I just said. You need to grieve like I just grieved. We need to do it together, and you need to tell other people the same thing. Why does he do that? 
Well, David understands something that's really important for us to understand, which is death in all of its forms does one of two things always. It either divides and destroys, or it unifies and it encourages. What do I mean by that? Well, death takes many different forms. We understand this. We've used the slogan, die a thousand deaths, right? Death is loss. It is sometimes physical. It is sometimes emotional. It is sometimes mental. It, it can be permanent and it can be temporary. See, death is obviously, as we understand, loss of life. But it's more than that. And it can be more of that. More than that. It has different forms. Here are some of the forms. Loss of life. Death can be loss of physical ability, loss of mental capability, loss of a relationship, loss of a job, loss of self that often looks like depression or addiction, loss of faith, loss of hope, loss of desire, loss of a goal or loss of a commitment or a promise. All these things are death in one way or another because death is loss. And I want to read this again, and I want you to think as I read this, how have you experienced death? What are the ways in which you have felt these things? Loss of life. Loss of physical ability. Loss of mental capability. Loss of a relationship. Loss of a job. Loss of self. Loss of faith. Loss of hope. Loss of desire. Loss of a goal or loss of a commitment or a promise. See, death hurts. It's painful when we lose and when we fail and when we suffer these things. It's hard. And what happens is that one of two things becomes the case. It either divides and destroys community or it can unify and encourage community. All of us in here have experienced death in one way or another, some of us more than others. But every single one of us in here has either been pulled out of the throes of death or wish we were pulled out of the throes of death by the help of another. Someone was there to listen. Someone was there to encourage. Someone was there to care for. Someone was there to cry with us. Someone was there to grieve with us. Someone was there to give us advice or to equip us. Someone was there that we could trust in. We all move from death to life by another person. This is true of our faith, as we know, right? We were dead in our sins. And what did Christ say that he did? He made us alive to him in faith. Through his death and his life and his resurrection, Christ has taken us from death. We were like Saul, and Christ was like David. He came to us, though we were rebellious, and he pulled us to himself, and he gave us life. But this isn't just true of our faith. This is true of our life, and this is why Christ has given us the church. Because we move from death to life, we begin to heal, we begin to work through and to process the death that we're experiencing through others, through our community. And David knows that the people of God in moments of death need unity and they need encouragement and need others. They don't need celebration. They don't need condemnation. They don't need gossip. They need unity. You see, Saul was terrible to David. I mean, terrible. He was more terrible to David than any other human will ever be to us in our entire life. Unless you live in the desert for 10 years and you're afraid for your life, then David had it worse. I mean, he had it horrible. And yet he's resolved to praise him because he knows two things. One, Saul is a part of the community of God. And then therefore, 
David has no right, nor should he, praise or celebrate the death of Saul. Secondly, that in moments of death, the community of God needs to come together, to band together, to grieve together, to hurt together, because then unification and encouragement can be found. And you see this play out in 2 Samuel. As you're going to continue in this story and going through personal worship, we're going to see the story unfold, where David is desiring to bring the people of God together, unify them. And then people who were followers of Saul, who believed as Saul did, in these moments of death, they decide to destroy and divide. They put up their own king. They want to destroy David. They want to diminish. They want to pull apart the kingdom. They care nothing for those in the people. They don't care for the people of God. They don't care what pain it causes. They have their agenda, and they want to promote their agenda. And David works to try to bring unity, and it's met with resistance, and we're going to see it's met with more loss and more death. But David ultimately is successful in bringing the people of God together and unifying them. And here's the moment in the sermon. We have these moments at different times where we have to be honest and we have to be real with ourselves. It's not always easy. You know, if you're like me, it's very easy to go to church or to listen to a sermon online or to sing worship music or to go to a Bible study or to go somewhere where you're being inspired by being encouraged in spiritual truth, in God's word. It's really easy to sit there and just to stay on the surface, right? To stay in the abstract and to be like, yeah, you know what? Second Samuel 1, David's amazing. I don't know how he did that. I don't know how he could lament over Saul. That's incredible. He's a great role model. He's a great example. His passion for the community of God is astounding. But it's easy, if you're like me, just to stay there, Right? And then we kind of go on our way, and we do our thing. And this is a moment where we kind of have to go a little bit deeper with ourselves, within our own heart, metaphorically fall on our sword, (laughs) and kind of open ourselves up to see what the Lord would tell us. Because we have to answer this question honestly. Why is it so surprising to, I think, all of us in this room, why is it so surprising that David laments over Saul. If you did your personal worship, or even this morning, why do you immediately think that is incredible that he would do that? Because, see, for us, life matters. We would agree with that assertion that life matters, it's important, but life really only matters for us and for those that we choose to love. That's who life matters for. See, life in our culture can very easily be about promotion and esteem and success and acceptance and community and happiness. And these things aren't all bad. These things can be good. But when we think about these things and the things that we make life about, who do we want them for? Ourselves and those that we choose to love. And so what happens is we become people who celebrate the death of others. We celebrate when people fail. Maybe not always publicly, but privately. And our culture reinforces this. Our culture loves this. We love when the big mean giant falls to the underdog, right? We love the underdog story. We love and eat up celebrity gossip and tabloids, and we laugh when they fail. We like collapse, especially for those who deserve it. A few examples. You guys remember the Tiger Woods thing, right? 
And what he did was terrible. But we ate up and we celebrated and we wanted Tiger Woods to fail at everything in life. Maybe not everyone, but our culture definitely did. We wanted to destroy him. But did we think about the ramifications to his family, to those around him? You know, something to bring it home for us. You know, the last four years we have been basking in the greatness of the Miami Heat. And everyone else in the world has hated us because we were the big, mean giant. We took all the players everybody else wanted, and we won, and we succeeded, and everyone else was jealous, and they hated us. And then they celebrated when our reign ended and LeBron went home, right? Because now the giant has fallen. Or maybe making it a little harder, do you celebrate when Obama fails? Do you want him to fail? Because then it will make you feel good about your position and your stance towards him. This may not just be true of Obama. It could be true of Bush or for any president or any leader or any company. There are people that we view as a big, mean giant, and we want them to fail because we've chosen not to love them. We love the underdog story, but the problem is we all see ourselves as the underdog and that anyone who stands in our way, the things that we want, they are automatically the big, mean giant. And David challenges us in this, and it's not just general, but he gets really specific, and I want you to answer this question in your mind. Was Saul David's enemy? Was Saul David's enemy? You know it's a trick question because I asked it. The answer is no. He wasn't. Now, David was Saul's enemy. We've seen that. He's chased him for 10 years trying to kill him. But that was Saul's sin and Saul's failure. David never viewed Saul as his enemy. Never. And you see that here in his lamentation. We ha- we, we've heard this before, that God tells us to love our enemies. This really nice phrase that's actually really hard to do. And we know it's true. We don't need to work at it, but it's really hard. This is really important. Your enemy is never another brother or sister in Christ. Never. They are never an enemy, despite the differences, despite the things that you may feel towards them, despite the things that you may feel justified in feeling towards them because of their attitude or their actions or their behavior, despite the competition that you may feel, despite the petty or significant differences that you may have, your enemy is never another brother or sister in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 reinforces this to us. Starting in verse 12, it says, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 21 continues and says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are to be treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We are compared to the body. We are one body, and when the foot hurts, the whole body hurts. When the hand hurts, the whole body hurts. When the heart hurts, the whole body hurts. 
And it's summed up in that phrase that when, we, when one of us suffers, we all suffer. When one of us gains and increases and is bestowed honor, we all rejoice. And David is reinforcing this. Someone in the body, the people of God, the community of God has just died. And though they may have had differences, huge differences, David suffers alongside Israel over that loss. He does not celebrate it. He knows that this means that we can never, ever, ever celebrate the death and loss and failure of another in the body. We don't compete with one another. We don't secretly hope that others fail and lose. We don't celebrate when they do lose. And this is why one of the things that we talk about is so dangerous, and that's gossip. Because what gossip does is it divides and destroys. It is a, co- it is a choice to reject 1 Corinthians 12 and to reject 2 Samuel 1 and to say, I'm going to be someone that divides and destroys. I'm refusing to be like David. I'm refusing to, to uphold 1 Corinthians 12. I'm choosing to be like Saul. Because see, our king has given us to each other, and there's going to be a lot of stuff that's going to come with that because we are different and we are sinful and we make mistakes. But we're called to be one. He tells us that we are Israel. We are his people. And Israel needs more Davids, myself included. We need to grieve and we need to hurt and we need to care when others lose and suffer failure and death. And we need to celebrate and we need to rejoice when others gain and increase, even if we don't increase. See, regardless, we are to be passionate for the community, the community of God. We are to pray for and celebrate others' increase and to grieve and to lament when others suffer loss. If one member suffers, no matter what member that is, all suffer together. If one member is honored, no matter what member that is, all rejoice together. You see, it's true that all of us in here are underdogs in some sense. Christ has told us this much. He says, in the world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. That all of us, in some way, are underdogs, but yet our story is assured with victory. But no one in this room and no one in the family of God is the big mean giant. No one. Your enemy is not in this room and is not in the church of Christ. And so we're called to be one, to come together, to pray for each other, to celebrate each other, to grieve together, to suffer together. And to do so privately and publicly. So I want to do something a little bit different as we close in prayer I want to open in prayer, and I want to ask you to put a hand on someone on their shoulder that's near you. This may sound weird. You may be freaked out. It's okay. The reason I want you to do this is, as a church, we are called to pray together, to pray for one another. You may not know the person. You may not know what they're feeling, what they're going through, what they're suffering, whether it's honor and rejoicing or whether it's loss and suffering. But I want to pray, and I'm going to open up a time of just silence where you can pray for that person. You don't have to pray out loud. You can pray in your head for them. But offer that up to God. He knows what they're going through. He knows what they're suffering through. But we as the people of God are called to care for each other, to pray for each other, to love each other, to not divide and destroy. So I want to pray, and I want to open that up, and I want us as a church to begin praying for and thinking about that and caring for each other in that way. So let me pray.
Lord, we thank you for this time this morning in your word. You are so gracious to us, and we are so quick to refuse to believe what you say and who you are. God, we we have built our own little kingdoms, and we have invited those in that we want in there. And we want the other kingdoms to fall. Help us to understand, Lord, that as, as citizens of your kingdom, as people of faith, that we are all in the same kingdom. We may have differences. There may be things that are hard. But we're called to love each other, to care for each other, to pray for each other, to reconcile when we have differences. We're called to suffer together and to rejoice together. So, Lord, help make us a church. Give us your grace and Holy Spirit make it so that we would be a church that continues to work at unification, that continues to work at encouragement, that prays for each other not just on a Sunday morning, but throughout the week, that thinks of each other. And, Lord, we pray that you would make it so, as you did in Acts, that as we begin to love each other, that people in this city would see that. And they would want to know you and come to know you because of the love that we have for one another. We pray that your gospel would be seen in that and that we would give the grace of your gospel to others that we need to. We pray that we would pray for each other and lift each other up right now. God, thank you for this community. Thank you for this time to pray for one another. We pray for those who are suffering. We pray that they would come to this community and to two people here that we can suffer together and care for them in their time of need. We pray for those that are experiencing increase and and honor that we would be able to celebrate with them. We thank you for those blessings. Pray that you continue to be near to us as one. We will continue to trust in you as we go out from here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.